church, as they're making their way out, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Numbers, the book of Numbers. You know, I don't know about you, but, um, man, just sometimes those words just hit differently. You know, I don't know if it's the week that I've had or whatever it might be for you or how you feel about it or maybe you come in stone cold and or just a brick wall where God's not able to penetrate. But I really, the more I was thinking about this morning and, and leading up to today, man, I'm just reminded so much about what this moment is. You know, no one else on the entire earth gets the opportunity to do what we do besides the children of God. To meet with their maker together in acknowledgement of who he is, in acknowledgement of what he's done, in celebration of that, but in also grabbing hold of the present and the future hope that he has for us. No other entity on the world enjoys the presence of their maker like the Christian faith does. And so when we sing that death could not hold you, the grave, you know, just the, 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 the enemies has no power. Man, I don't know about you, but I, when, I sing, when I sang those words this morning, like it brought to my attention the enemies that I faced this week, the enemies that I, I think about for my children that they face on a daily basis. And like, and I need that reminder. And the enemy has no strength, no power against our God. So if we're leaning into any strength this morning, I pray that it's that. If we're leaning into any hope this morning, I pray that it's that. And so as we continue to read in the book of Numbers how God is building up His church and we see ourselves kind of navigating a time as a church of being built up, that we could see that same hope. Numbers chapter 2. I know we already read through chapter 2 a little bit a couple weeks ago or last week. But we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 2 and we're going to read verse... 32, verse 32 through 34. And it says this, it says, These are the people of Israel, as listed by their father's houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out each one in his clan, according to his father's house. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truths that it holds. Father, I thank you that there are words beyond ours to lead us, guide us, and direct us into the spaces and places you'd have us to live and breathe. So, Father, challenge us this morning, convict us. Lord, open our hearts and minds to you and your truths. Lord, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, as we kind of continue into this, uh, this, this space, at which, remember, we talk about the book of Numbers being a very unique book. <clears throat> And honestly, not preach through a whole lot verse by verse just because <clears throat> the narrative is so long and it's expansive and it's kind of thick. 
But the book of Numbers kind of bridges the gap between Exodus and Leviticus when the Israelites received the law and then preparing them to enter the promised land which we see in Deuteronomy and Joshua. And so <clears throat> the book of Numbers is a very unique kind of space for the children of Israel because what God is doing is He's building them up, preparing them, kind of doing something with them and pointing them in the direction that they would go, not only preparing them for an enemy, but also like we talked about last week, preparing them for the promises that He has for them. And so, you know, the thing that we learn about God as we go, if you go through the Old Testament specifically, there's a lot of detail in the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but my wife typically tells me that in some things I'm very attentive to detail, but then in other things I am very not attentive to detail, right? Like I, I hate very tedious activities, very tedious tasks. I don't like to paint um, because when I paint, I want to paint like this and then I just sling stuff everywhere. I just can't because I, I don't have the patience to like trim and like all that stuff. I can't do it. Um, but she typically tells me the things that I care about, I take a lot of attention to detail, even to the utmost where it's annoying and bothersome to people. Um, and so, you know, the thing about God is that as we go through the book of Numbers, what you're going to see is mountains and mountains and mountains of detail for a reason because it's what God cares about. And all of that being poured into His people and who they are and what He intends to do with them. And so these mountains of detail, you know, is bringing attention to something that God is doing for His people. And this is something for a people of God that we have to remember about what God is doing with us. When God is applying detail to His people, when He's building His people up, He's trying to make them something different. He's trying to make the Christian faith, the people of Christ, the people of God, the Israelites here, and then the New Testament church being us, He's trying to make us look different than everyone else. We're not meant to be a reflection of the world we already live in. We're meant to live in a reflection of His kingdom come. We're meant to be something different. We're meant to be something not to escape into the world, but something that the world can escape to. A refuge, a stronghold. We're supposed to be something, supposed to be something different. And so what God is doing in this world that the Israelites exist in is He's building them up, molding them, managing them, as we'll talk about this morning, into a people that look different than the world that they live in. Because God knows, for one... To influence the world on the outside, we have to change this kingdom from within. And so that's where he begins. He's pouring into these people. He's trying to prepare them for something. But the problem is for them and the problem for us and a lot of times is we don't like, we don't like the process. We don't always care for the process. We don't care for the waiting. That's a major thing for us, especially in our, the world we live in. We don't like to prepare. We, like, we, we are about going. We want to be moving. We want to be seeing results. We want to be having, I mean, we live in that world of the Amazon Prime and the pluses. Every streaming service is a plus so that you have it now and you don't have commercials, right? Uh, and so everything's about get it now. And for us, the reality, the rea reality of them the reality of us that is not much different is that we hate to wait. We want results. We want them now. But the thing we have to remember is that God uses the process. God is using this time in the wilderness. Is partly, is part of it, their punishment and discipline for their, for their idol worship. Absolutely. But even in our failure, God uses that process to refine us. 
You know, and, and the Bible references this refining process a lot, right? They use this with, with metals and di different things to remove the impurities, to kind of break away the things that are distorting their purity and their beauty. And so God uses the waiting that we navigate. He uses the processes that we enter into, whether it's the process of, of growing in our spiritual faith or trying to be a spiritual mother, father, uh, parent, grandparent, husband, wife, whatever it is as we're navigating this process, God is using that process to refine us. And it's within this waiting that we can actually find God. Isaiah 40, verse 31, it says, But they who wait for the Lord shall, what, renew their strength. Those who wait on the Lord will find what? We'll find renewal. We'll find the strength that we need to be and to act and to live in the way that we need to, in the way that causes us to obedience and holiness. The problem is we hate waiting so much that we don't wait on the Lord. We run out in front of the Lord in regards to where we want to go, where we want to be, how we want to think and how we want to act, that we never find strength in that. And I think that's for a lot of us where we find ourselves in life is we're running this race of life. Life, but we're not finding that renewal because why? Because we're not waiting on the Lord. We're not hearing from Him. We're not depending on Him. What we're doing isn't pointing to Him. And so in that process, we're not finding renewal because we're not waiting on Him. We're waiting on ourselves or we're waiting on something around us to provide us that renewal of strength and it's just going to fall short constantly. And so the Bible tells us to wait and we will find that renewal because the reality of this is every single thing we experience in life is part of God preparing us before He sends us. And that's what God is doing here in the book of Numbers. He's preparing them for the promises before He sends them to the promises because God knows. God knows there's enemies. God knows that they're going to get there and that a group of scouts are going to go into that land and they're going to say, hey, we can't conquer these people. Like, we're not going to be able to overcome this enemy. And then the leadership are going to be able to reference back to who God is and have what He did to prepare them for these promises and be able to stand and say, no, 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 no. We can overcome this land. Like, this is ours to take. God told us. And so God is preparing them to send them. And God does the same thing in our lives. You know, I used to have conversation with conversation after pe with, with people in ministry or, or different uh, entities when having conversations, you know. And, and kind of the new fad is kind of living, living, living and doing and, and acting in ways that just are kind of... On, by the seat of our pants, right? Like just, just live. And, and a lot of times people, especially in ministry, the way it was kind of thrown out there is like, well, we're just letting the Holy Spirit guide. It's like, no, that's being careless, right? If we're not thinking things out, if we're not considering things, if we're not applying intellect to what God has given us, but we're just saying, well, we're just going to let the Holy Spirit lead us and just do our thing. No, 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 no. That's not how that works. Because God has attention to details. God has put details into the process. And so for us, as we navigate it, we have to take into consideration these things as we, as we navigate. Proverbs 21.5, he says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The, plan, the plans of the diligent lead to abundance. He says, listen, you know, a lot of times people on the outside of the Christian faith, they believe that being a part of the Christian faith is leaving your intellect at the door and then stepping into this, this thing that we call church and Christianity. But that's not true. 
God is very intentional. God is very planned. God is very detailed. God is involved in the details to, to the extent at which God knows those details before we get to those details. God knows the details from the beginning to the end. He's already given us a book that proves that. God knows every detail. He's laid everything out that all amount to His glory and His victory and His honor and for us to be able to sit at the right hand of that holy God that has planned those details out for our good and for His glory. That's the God that we serve. Not a God that's catching up to what's going on, but a God who's already been there. A God who applies details. And so what he's doing with these people here in the book of Numbers is something very unique in that he's preparing them some more for, for some things very specific. And two things that we'll look at this morning is how God is managing the mission of the people. And then the second thing being this, how he is molding them for the ministry. Managing them for the mission and molding them for the ministry and how he does that for them and how he will do this for us. And so we see here in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with banners of their father's house. You see a theme in, the, in, in, chapter, in chapter 2, a really neat theme, but maybe for some of us could even be a little terrifying, is this theme of these sections that will read this word standards. For one. And so what we need to understand about these standards is this isn't like everyone living by their own moral code. That's not what this is saying. Uh, it's not saying that everyone living by their own way. You know, uh, you, you do you, right? Or, or you do what makes you happy. That's not what this is saying. What this word is actually saying, and maybe some of your other translations may say it, say it a little differently. But when he says the standard, he's talking about a logo, He's talking about an insignia. He's talking about some sort of representation. A representation of what? Their father's house. Their family. And so as he's managing this mission, what is he doing? Something that I believe is very terrifying for us, and it's a visibility. Visibility of who we are. Visibility of where we're from. Visibility of who our people are. You know, and I think for a lot of us, you know, that's one of the, the drawbacks to stepping into the mission of God is visibility. You know, in a lot of where we've come from, maybe it's generations before us, or where we've come from personally in the life that we've lived, that we have fear of visibility. You know how God says, and then we'll, we'll kind of read through it here in a little bit, but He tells them, like, your emblem, your logo, your, your flag with your symbol is going to be seen, so when people see it, they're going to associate that with your name. And even for them, I mean, we know, we, we can read about some of these people, Reuben and Dan, and some of these in the Old Testament. If you go back and read, these people weren't perfect, and these people were navigating different things that they very easily could have been like many of us are. I don't want that visibility. Like, God, you don't want to be associated with my emblem, with my logo. But God, when he's managing the mission, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. And because God has attention to detail, we can see how this matters and why this is important. This isn't meant for us to be afraid to show who we are. But it's in light of who we are to see what God is doing. What God has done. You know, because I love how God shows through all of that fear of being visible and reveals to us that there's a greater purpose because what's unique and what's built in, this is how God works, the sovereignty of God, how God works. 
When God arranges, and, and I wish I had a map, and you could kind of see, so the temple's in the middle, the tabernacle's in the middle, and He begins to arrange these groups of people around this tabernacle. And we see it in these verses to follow, but the first one we see on the east side of this tabernacle, which is the entrance to this tent, He says the, the, the tribe of Judah will be there. Now that sounds familiar, right? The entrance of the place that is God's presence dwells there. The Ark of the Covenant's there. The, the, the presence of God dwells there with God's people. That the tribe of Judah is at the entrance of that. At the south side is the, the tribe of Reuben. On the west side is the tribe of Ephraim. And then on the north side is the tribe of Dan. In, chapter, in verse 25. But all of these people, all of these tribes, these names who are the names of people, people's fathers' houses... They mean something. They mean something. Very specific and very unique. And you don't read this in your Bible, but if you dig a little bit, you can kind of, kind of find these logos or these emblems that these people's flags would have had on it. And so the tribe of Judah, you can probably guess what that one is, right? What is Judah? What would their emblem have been? A lion. A lion, right? So at the entrance of the presence of God, God has placed the tribe of Judah... These priests, these, these, these people at the, at the mouth of the presence of God as a lion. On the south side, the tribe of Reuben, their standard, their logo was that of a man. On the west side, Ephraim, their logo or their emblem, their standard was an ox. And on the north side, Dan, their logo, their emblem was an eagle. Now, just within that, like we could preach a whole sermon just off of that, but I want to try to get through Numbers 3, so we're not going to spend a ton of time there. But there's something very unique there. Like you see how that's playing out, right? The tribe of Judah, the lion, the ox, the man, the eagle, like there's spiritual significance to those things. But even greater than what we see if we take a step back, kind of, kind of the, from the air view of Scripture, of what's happening here, we see these four things mentioned two other places. Two other places. And they have a significance. They have an importance. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, we see this. I'm going to read verse 5. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but verse 5, it says, and from the midst. So Ezekiel is a prophet, right? Ezekiel is a prophet, and he's communicating the mouthpiece of God. He's communicating some information. He says this. It says, And from the midst of it, speaking of a vision, of the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. And then in verse 10, we read this. Prophecy. Ezekiel prophesying. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face, and four had the face of a lion on the right side. And four had the face of an ox on the left side. And four had the face of an eagle. And so what is this? If we jump on down to verse 26, we begin to see what's happening here. Verse 26 of Ezekiel 1 says, And above the expanse over their head there was a likeness of a throne. 
in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And down in verse 28 says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when he saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. And then there's another instance where we read this interaction. Revelation chapter 4. Flip all the way back to the back. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. It says, And before the throne there was, at were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So what is this? The detail of God, right? These four men with names long before this moment are arranged around the presence of God as a representation of what? Because of their logos, as a representation of what? The throne of God. As a representation of the mighty nature of who God is, the rule of who God is, the strength of who God is as a presence among those people, telling what in the midst of their mission? That God is on His throne with you. That God is the King of all of this. A reminder about no matter what enemy comes against you, the mighty nature of the armies of God stand on your side. There is a holiness here. There is a power here. So the first thing is this, is that the throne of God is present here. The presence and power and rule of God among His people is represented in these banners of what? Of families, of people. Of men who maybe would have been at times embarrassed that their names were seen. But it wasn't about them. It wasn't about their failure. It wasn't about their representation. It was about a showing of the power and the presence of God. And if we will allow ourselves in the midst of the mission of God to be visible, we can also stand as a representation of the throne of God in our life and what He's doing and what He intends to do for us and through us. If we'll be willing to be visible, to be seen. Listen, we're all broken. We all have flags we're embarrassed to fly. But God says it's bigger than that. Because when they see that flying high in the midst of the presence of God, they don't think about you. They're going to think about the throne of God. The throne of God. But not only that, not only that is this a, a showing of the throne of God, but then also this. You know, and, and, and work with me here, but maybe we consider why or think about the fact that we have four Gospels and there's a rhythm to those four Gospels. There's themes that carry through those four Gospels. And is it what? In the book of Matthew, the theme of the book of Matthew is the fulfilling of the prophecy of what? Of the Lion of Judah. That the Lion of Judah has come. That the Lion of Judah is present. And in the book of Mark... What is it? The theme of the book of Mark, a very condensed book. A very short book that gets straight to business. What is it, the theme? The theme is Jesus as a servant. And what animal, among all animals, most animals, is the animal of servitude? 
an ox, right? That beast of burden, dragging the plow, carrying the equipment, the servant. The book of Luke, the theme in the book of Luke is Jesus' perfect humanity. Being the perfect human that we could never be. Jesus' perfect humanity. And then the book of John, the theme of the book of John from the very beginning, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like the, the, the theme carrying through the book of John is that Jesus is the Son of God. The focus on His divinity, the greatness of God. And what animal is the spiritual representation of greatness, of power, of freedom, of glory? The eagle. Right? The eagle. And so even in the Gospels, we see this purposefully laid out, detailed view of the coming of Christ for these people here. The presence of Jesus, the work of Christ to be our beast of burden. To carry the work that we could not carry. To be the perfect human that we could never be. To give us His righteousness. To give us His good deeds. So that when God sees us, He doesn't see the filthy rags that we carry ourselves. But He sees the perfect robe of righteousness that, that Jesus Christ places on His people. To be viewed as good, not by our own goodness, but by the goodness of Jesus. That we see the fulfilling prophet and the lion of Judah, the power, the might, the, the, the presence of that lion. Fulfilling thousands of years of prophecy and who Jesus is. And then the divinity of Christ. Seen and, and felt and, and the perspective, you know, the eagle flying high, the perspective to see all. That's our God. And that's the Christ that we serve. And that's the mission that he's preparing us for. And then leading us into our second and last thing this morning is not only is he managing the mission, but he's molding, the, molding us for the ministry. Molding for the ministry. Uh, Numbers chapter 3, jumping into Numbers chapter 3, picking up in verse 5 and reading it to verse 8. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So what's happening here is as Jesus, as God was giving tasks and uh, giving land to all these tribes, He left one tribe out. The tribe of Levi. He told them, He said, listen, you're not going to get land like everybody else. You're not going to get a portion of property like everyone else. But you're going to get a different portion. You're going to get a responsibility. You're going to get something to tend to. And what does He tell them? Your work is the tabernacle. Your work is the presence of God. Your work is tearing it down and setting it up, moving it where we go, protecting it. So what he's telling them is that your portion is the Lord. And so what he did is he appointed a special priesthood to help his people obey his law and bear witness of his goodness. You know, there were two major roles in the Old Testament, one of prophet and one of a priest. Prophets represented God to the people, whereas priests represented the people to God. Bearing the weight of the people's sin and making atonement for that and making offerings on behalf of the people. Going before the presence of God when other people couldn't. Teaching people the law of God and being a judge amongst the community among issues and different things that were going on. What God is doing here 
as He's molding the ministry here, as He's, he's revealing to them, as He's shaping all this around the presence of God, there's a weight of spiritual concern and seriousness about what God is building. Spiritual concern. Where He tells them, listen, you're not going to get land and property to farm and to do those things like everyone else. Your entire tribe is going to focus solely on the presence of God. Because like we said in the beginning, to do anything in the ministry, we have to know what we're ministering from. We have to have, he's, what God is doing is He's making His people into something different so that they have a ministry to present. He's creating holy spaces, set apart spaces, different spaces for His people to live and love and teach in. Establishing holiness, establishing a standard of God among His people to invite these other people into. You know, and, and we see the seriousness, even if you jump back to verse 4 of chapter 3. You see two men in verse 4, these two men, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests. And it said they were, they were priests that came and they, were, they began to make the first offerings that these priests would make. And what happened to them? It says that they died. Just instantly, just dead, right there. And why did they die? The Bible tells us here in verse 4, it says they died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire or strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And so the fire was the way in which they made offerings and worship. So what they presented, what they presented was an author, unauthorized or strange fire, a fire that did not have place there, a holiness that was not God's holiness or some sort of offering that was a false offering. And what we can really know is that we need to understand that God knows more than how we do the task at hand. He knows the heart. Listen, they probably did, more than likely, they did the task the way they were told to do it. But God weighs the heart. God knows our heart. God knows our intentions. God knows what we plan to do and what this is meant to show us is the seriousness of holiness, the seriousness of sin, the weight of sin, the cost of sin. And maybe these men entered into this space with pride. Maybe these people entered into this space with selfishness, with disdain, with some sort of approach that was not, maybe some false way at which they approached that. You know, as we navigate the, the space of our Christian faith, there are going to be strange fires that light up all through the Christian faith. Unauthorized fires that aren't meant to be there, aren't meant to be a representation of the worship and holiness of God. And God takes those things serious. And it starts, it starts here. It starts before we even see a mention of an outsider. Where does He start? In the church. This is where we've got to get it figured out. This is where it has to be accurate. This is where it has to be right. This is where things have to be holy. This is where we've got to make it what we're bringing before the world around us. Two top-ranking priests die because of their sin. Maybe it was carelessness or irreverence, whatever it was. God knows the heart. And we cannot offer to Him in our life any worship, in pride. Listen, God seeks those who come in humility. And so the way the ministry has to look is it has to look 
and be driven by humility. And then we see more of God kind of establishing this holiness in Numbers chapter 3, verse 38. He says, Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was put to death, was to be put to death. So what we have to understand about this is when we read a verse like this, and a lot of times people on the outside, they'll read a verse like this, and they'll immediately say like, you know, that, 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 God, uh, that God was exclusive, that, that God was murderous, that God would treat other people a certain way and not treat other people a different way. You know, all these things that the outside world will try to look at it. But the thing about it is, is that the Scripture is all, all throughout Scripture and all through the Old Testament even, we see moments of outsiders becoming a part of the, the people of God. You know, we see it with Rahab. I mean, we see it with different situations like that, if you're familiar with the story. But, you know, people who maybe weren't born an Israelite, they were molded into the family of God at, at different points throughout the Old Testament. But then we also have moments like this, in the moments before, where we see two priests die in the, whole, in the tabernacle. Or we see this warning that outsiders will die. Why? It's not because he's trying to keep people out. It's because he's trying to protect the holiness of his people. He's trying to keep them from being like what's out there. Trying to keep them from being a reflection of the world around them and be a reflection of the kingdom that God is building. He's trying to limit their influences that negatively shift their focus away from holiness and shift away to a different type of morality. Because in this day and age, the morality of people, before governmental systems really existed, before anything besides moral law existed, you know, in this time, people living by their own morality, the world was a horrible place. I mean, murder and, and just disgusting things happening in the world around them. And so God had to be, God said, if an outsider comes, they will die because they will taint the morality of the people that we're trying to build. And now this happens on and off through Scripture with the people of God. And then God refines. And so, but what we need to know, because I know from the outside, this seems like a very inward focus. This was an inward focus in a sense to be externally more effective. Inward focus to be externally effective. And what we have to understand and, and, and know is as we move into the New Testament, the problem with the New Testament Jews is they never became externally focused. They took these instructions and they continued to focus inwardly. They continued to focus on themselves. And they continued to build walls around the faith that didn't allow people to get in. And that's a problem. Because that wasn't ever meant to be the intentions of God's people. That's not what God was building His people to do, to build walls to keep people from, being, from coming in. He was building them up to establish a, a moral code to live by, a law to live by, to be a representation of holiness and goodness that God was creating them to be so that the world around them would have an escape from the ugliness that they were living in. To have an escape from the death and the destruction that the world around them lived in, the pride and all those things. But what happened is as the church came into the New Testament era, they, era, they never shifted them, their focus from within and, and, and moved it outwardly. 
I mean, that's why the Bible says that they were like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones because they never got outside of that. And so what happens to something that secludes itself, right? What happens to something, an entity or anybody or anything that isolates itself from people? It dies. And he said, Jesus said, now they're just full of dead man's bones. And it's the same thing in the church. We start here, building up here, with the intentions of externally focusing. Getting to a point where we're inviting people, engaging with people around us for the sake of, the, of what God is doing. And this is the thing, I read this quote this week. It says, a church left to itself will naturally turn inward. It takes an overabundance of effort to keep it outward. Listen, and you've, you've lived in those places, right? You've been in those churches. There are, you know, in the course of our existence as a church, we've had a lot of conversations with different churches about different things. There are a lot of churches that will live out their existence with two to three people in, within those buildings with enough finances to make it long enough to never change anything within. To never, never be made uncomfortable by someone coming in that sees things differently than them. To never be uh, challenging themselves to ministry. Because inevitably a church left to itself will turn inward. Because it's comfortable. Because it's safe. Proverbs tells us that, that where the oxen are, the stall is dirty. And I've always loved that verse because it's a reminder that doing ministry is messy. It's uncomfortable. You're let down sometimes. You're disappointed sometimes. Sometimes things don't work out the way you would hope they were. Sometimes you don't see the results you would hope that would be the result. Sometimes the number of people don't show up that you hoped would show up. Sometimes people don't follow a standard you would hope that they would. But like that proverb tells us, where the oxen are, the stall is messy. But you know what? Where the oxen are, the work gets done. And things happen. The beast of burden. And that's what we do. That's who we are. The, the ministry that we, that we set out to be. And we only do that by being outwardly focused. You know, and this isn't just, and this is the thing we have to understand. This isn't just inviting people. This isn't just inviting people to be a part of where we are and what we do. But this is being willing to sacrifice ourselves in ways necessary for growth. And not numerical growth. We're, I'm talking about spiritual growth, depth of growth, sustaining growth for ourselves, for our children, for the people in our circles of influence. That it's so much more than just inviting them to be where we are, but it's willing to put ourselves in places and spaces of sacrifice to interact with them, to be uncomfortable, to be stretched a little thin, to serve someone else, to love on someone else, to provide a service, to provide a need, being external from what God has done internally. And that's what God is doing with His people here. He's preparing them. for He's revealing the seriousness of the priesthood was to lead the people toward the presence of God and to embrace His holiness, but not to be left to itself for itself, but to reach the world around it. Molding them for the ministry. Molding them for something greater. And the thing about it is even from the beginning, the priesthood was always meant to evolve. In Exodus, 
In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom, talking about the people, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The priesthood was meant to evolve. When Jesus came, things changed. And we see it again in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a what? Talking to the church. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim, that you may proclaim the excellencies of, his name, of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. The priesthood was meant to change. It wasn't meant to be, you know, in the Old Testament, it was one group of people. This group of people were the priests. And then Jesus Christ came, and he became our high priest. What does a priest do? A priest represents the people to God. Jesus Christ came to be our high priest, to make offering once and for all for us, so our sins could be forgiven. So that what? So that who could become priests? All of us. Isn't that amazing? You didn't even know that you can start calling yourself father or whatever when you leave. That's, you're, you're all priests. People, the people of God, we are called to be priests. And what does that mean? It comes with a responsibility. The priests took what serious? They took holiness seriously. They took the work of worship seriously. They took the ministry seriously. And so that's not just on me. That's on us. Dads, you're priests of your home. Moms, you're priests of your home. Kids, you're priests of your school. If you're a child of God this morning, if you are a saved believer in Jesus in the, home, in the school you work and live in and, 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 and function in, you're a priest there. So God calls us to take holiness seriously. God calls us to bring that tent of meeting with us, the presence of God into those spaces because that's what the priests were meant to do. They were meant to carry the presence of God everywhere that they went. We as priests are meant to do that. Two roles that don't exist in the same capacity that they did in the Old Testament anymore are priests and prophets. Because there's no hierarchy anymore. There's no hierarchy. There's no one person that goes to Jesus on your behalf anymore. The Bible tells us in Timothy that there's no mediator between God and man except for Christ Jesus. I don't need to go to someone to tell them my sin so that they can tell God for me. The Bible says I go to Jesus. I go to the throne of God in boldness and give Him my sin and, and repent and ask for forgiveness and then embrace the mercy and grace that He's given me and move into the ministry that He's called me to. Listen, because without that ability, I could not do this. I could not stand before you in the midst of all the sin and struggle and mess that I've lived through in my life and still live through and stand here and confidently tell you anything. But I'm thankful that in the, the ministry that God's called all of us to, the priesthood He's called the Christians here this morning to live in, is a priesthood of ministry for the people. Because we are His, and He is ours, and He has invited us into that space. And so the thing for us, as the team comes up, and, and we'll worship this morning, Worshiping in this, this presence of God. The two things. Managing the mission at which we recognize, we recognize 
the seriousness at which God takes holiness, the presence of God with us, and the mission of Christ for us, with us, and through us. And then the second thing being the ministry to remember. Number one, that we are not meant to be inwardly, so inwardly focused that we neglect our priestly duties to carry the holiness of God in the presence of the people around us. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in your work. Listen, I did full-time ministry for a long time, for, I say a long time, six years or so. And I loved it. I loved it. The thing that I did recognize is I spent a lot of time behind a desk, doing a lot of desk work with a lot of the same people. Great people, but very safe group of people for me. Very comfortable. A lot of all people who all agreed very much about everything. You know, when I moved out of that space and I started to be in a space where I wasn't now, and I worked jobs before that, and then I did ministry, and then so then to move out of that space, very fearful about my own weaknesses, very fearful, fearful about just the, the space at which I would step into. Something that I noticed really quickly. And this isn't a, anything against people in full-time ministry. I love the ministry. I believe in it. I believe in full-time ministry. But I thank God every day that I interact, get the opportunity and interact with people that I may never in a million years see in, in an office or in this space. But you know what I get to do? be the priest in that space at times I get to I get to bring my faith there I get to let people see who Jesus is in my life maybe have a conversation maybe something comes up maybe we get to talk conversations I never would have been able to have sitting at a desk and so know this you're nine to five or you're seven to seven or you're four to four wherever you're at there's a tabernacle there. There's an altar there waiting for you to bring your worship, to bring the presence of God there, to bring the holiness of who God is there because the people there desperately are waiting on it. They desperately need it. They desperately want it. Whether people want to admit it or not, everybody wants what God provides. And that's what we can give them. So we're going to worship this morning. And I want you to consider, consider the spaces at which God has called you to be a priest. Maybe it's in your home. That's the most important space. First and foremost is in your home. Secondly, the spaces of influence God has given you. That you would bring worship into that space. That you would bring the holiness and the presence of God into that space, not only as the dwelling of God within you, but the priest of God that he has made you. And to begin to be that in that space. So church, let's stand and let's pray together and seek God in this moment. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for your holiness. God, we thank you that you've created a kingdom that is different than the kingdoms that we live in right now. Father God, we thank you for the space that you allow us to live in. Lord, this space of of brokenness and that you empower us as priests of your name 
to reach the world that you've placed us in. Father God, I just pray for every individual here. God, I pray for the Christian that needs strength to step confidently into the space that you've called them to as the priest, as the, the, the temporary tabernacle of your presence while we're alive on this earth, carrying your glory and your beauty with us. God, let us be visible. Let us not be afraid to be seen, despite what our name means, despite the representation that maybe we've been in the past. God, let us be visible as a reminder of your glory, as a reminder of your throne, and a reminder of Christ. Lord, and call us and help us to see the ministry you have for us. God, and if we have anyone ask questions, Lord, if anyone has doubts about you, who you are, or the faith you've called them to, Father God, give them the courage to step out and to seek those answers and to find them in you. Lord, we love you, thank you, and praise you. In Jesus' holy name.